beginning with verse 2, the transfiguration. Pay attention to the six days, to the cloud, to the presence of God. Hear the word of the Lord. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord, use your servants' lips, your people's ears and hearts, that they may be wed, that the seed of your word might be planted and brought forth with a resurrection joy. Amen and amen. One of my favorite places to go as a child was the mountains. One of my family members had a cabin not far from Asheville, North Carolina. And that cabin was about three-quarters of the way up a mountain. And some of, some of the best memories that I have as a child was climbing the rest of that mountain and running up and down the ridge of that mountain and taking my friends with me to have a good time with me there also. I loved the mountains. And the mountains play an incredible part in the narrative of the Bible. If you go home and get your concordance and look up mountain or mountains, you will find again and again that there are specific and wonderful things that happen upon the mountain. In this image of transfiguration, we have Jesus and then Peter and James and John. I don't know if you've ever noticed But Peter and James and John get to do all the fun stuff with Jesus. They get to be, they're the inner circle of the twelve. And uh, you might notice that sometimes uh, the disciples have this competition to see who is the greatest or to see um, who is the, the most favored. But Peter and James and John are often the three that, for whatever reason, uh, wind up being leaders of the group, they are often the three that, for whatever reason, get to do all the cool stuff. Well, Jesus goes up the mountain. He goes up the mountain with Peter and James and John, and they see Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses and Elijah have their own mountain stories. You might remember the story of Moses, how Moses was in Egypt and he grew up in Pharaoh's household. And Moses 
when he grew up, learned to identify with the Hebrew people, and someone was, was bothering, was, was assaulting uh, one of the Hebrew people, and Moses killed the man. When Pharaoh and the Pharaonic household heard of it, there was an arrest warrant placed for Moses, and Moses fled. Well, he fled, and he got married, and he had children, and then, then came the mountain. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He'd started his new life. He had gone and started a new, new family. He led his flock beyond the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. And then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. Moses gets his call on the mountain. Later on in Exodus, that's from Exodus 3, but 21 chapters later, Moses is on the mountain again receiving the law from God. Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. Now, pay attention to the cloud language that is used in the transfiguration. The cloud indicates the presence, the glory of God. When Israel is traveling through the wilderness, there is a pillar of fire that leads them by night and a pillar of cloud that leads them by day. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. We find six days also in the transfiguration narrative. And on the seventh day, on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So we, we have Moses. Moses' call occurs on the mountain. Moses receives the message of God on the mountain. Well, who's the other figure in the transfiguration that Jesus encounters? It's Moses and Elijah. Now, there are a couple of reasons why Moses and Elijah are the two figures here. On the one hand, we have Moses that represents the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And we have Elijah that represents the prophets, all of the prophetic words of the Old Testament. There's another reason also that we might find Moses and Elijah here in the Gospel of Mark. It's because each of them had extraordinary ending experiences. On the one hand, Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind as we learned in our Old Testament reading. He's taken up in the whirlwind and therefore in the Scripture does not experience death as normal human beings experience it. And in Jewish thought, 
In some rabbinic thought, Moses too was taken up into heaven. But Elijah, Elijah has an encounter on the mountain just like Moses. God says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Now, there was a great wind. So strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What we have in each of these cases with Moses, with Elijah, with Jesus, and Peter and James and John is revelation. God is revealing Himself and showing Himself. God is presenting Himself to human beings that they might know who He is. That they might know what God intends for them. Well, in Moses' case, we learn that God cares about His people. There's the burning bush. And he says to Moses, go back to Egypt. Now you have to understand that Moses, having grown up in the household of Pharaoh, is one of the few people that is prepared to do what God intends to be done. Moses is the one who in our common, in our common speech may be said to have Pharaoh's garage door code. He can get into the palace. He knows the numbers to press on the keypad. And God cares about His people. So He sends Moses back to Egypt. God offers the law. And when He offers the law, He reveals that God cares about the human way of life. God cares in the Ten Commandments about how people treat one another. God cares about the relationships that we have with Him and with other people. God cares that society be structured so that the poor are not lost, so that the courts render just judgments. God cares how the world runs. And so we see that. In the mountain when God gives His law to Israel. When Elijah kind of runs away and wants to know, he, he thinks he's the only one that is faithful to God. And God meets him there on the mountain and reminds him that he cares about those that he calls and those who have been faithful to him. And Elijah thinks he's the only one who's been faithful to God. And God reminds him, no matter how it feels, I've got people. 
I've got you, but I've got others as well. And then on the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus and his disciples climb the mountain and suddenly Jesus is revealed for who he is. Not only man, but the God-man. As he shines in splendor and the cloud covers the mountain and the disciples are terrified, here again on the Mount of Transfiguration, we find God making himself known in the person of Jesus Christ on the mountain. Many of us have some kind of mountaintop experiences and they share certain characteristics. One of them is they're difficult to describe adequately. If you've ever been to a conference or if you've ever had some kind of amazing spiritual insight, when you go and try to share it with your friends or even your family members, sometimes it's hard. A mountaintop experience is difficult to describe adequately. It's at once terrifying, but also strangely comforting. There's a power there, a power that is beyond our imagination, and yet somehow reminds us that we are not forgotten. People don't always know how to respond immediately to a mountaintop experience. I remember what I would consider to be a mountaintop experience in my life, um, which, as I'll talk about in a minute, a lot of times these things accompany grief. And somehow they accompany things that we wouldn't consider to be high events in life. Uh, the first death that I really, really experienced in my life was the death of my grandmother. And as I experienced that, I was in the hospital as she, as she died, and I walked out into the hallway of Bruce Hospital in Florence, South Carolina, and I prayed that God would give me his peace. And God flooded my heart with what can only be described as peace that, that passes understanding. And it was, it was a wonderful thing, and I lived in that for, for a couple of weeks. And uh, one night I was getting ready to go to bed, and I'd read a little bit from the Bible, and I was just lying there, and I felt, I felt a prodding, prodding to open the Bible that was beside my bed. And simply to begin reading, I opened it and began reading from Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And that was, that was the beginning of sort of my sense of calling. It was the beginning of um, this realization that somehow my life and the life of the church were going to be intertwined. It didn't mean that I knew how that was going to happen. I was going to be a professor of theology, and here I am. I ended up a pastor instead. So sometimes, sometimes uh, things don't always play out as you think they will play out. 
We don't know immediately how to respond. It takes a while, but God communicates something in these mountaintop experiences that is important and that may ultimately be life-changing to us. There are a number of people that I've known over the years that have had a mountaintop experience. There have been a few that have said, I just haven't experienced anything like that. And for those of you that have, remember and hold on to those experiences where God reveals Himself to you. For those of you who, who might not have had such experience, remember that God is always with you and may reveal Himself at the strangest times, in the oddest places, whether that be in your car on the way to a doctor's appointment, or whether that be in a walk through the woods, or whether that be sitting out on a cloudless night and looking up at the stars, or maybe even reading a psalm. If you haven't had that kind of mountaintop experience, don't write it off. Look for it. Paradoxically, the mountaintop experience, the great high, often occurs sometimes when we are at a great low. People who are in a career, you know, they've got to put 25 years in and it's year 18, and they're like, my goodness, I don't know how I can do this for seven more years. I don't know how I can continue for seven more years doing what it is that, that I am doing. And suddenly there's this experience that changes them. When grief has entered the picture, when there's a profound sadness and you find yourself dealing with the, the, the pain that comes from uh, a loved one hurting, the pain that comes from some diagnosis that, that we might have, the pain that comes from our, our whole life plan changing. Paradoxically, these are moments when a lot of people have experienced mountaintop experiences of learning to trust God. For some people, it's physical pain and circumstances that are difficult personally in families. I was telling a friend who is not a believer recently about some experiences that, that we are having. And my, my friend says, well, that's why I can't believe in Jesus. And my response is, well, what, what makes you think that following Jesus means you'll never have pain. Jesus himself was crucified. Paul, one of the greatest expositors of the Christian faith, gave his life for the faith. Christians have heart attacks and get in automobile accidents. Christians get cancer, lose their eyesight. What makes us think that life should be all rosy? Why should we ask, why me? When perhaps we might ask, why not me? The world is a broken place, and that brokenness goes through every one of us, and that brokenness goes through every one of our families. 
Paradoxically, sometimes we grasp faith in the mountaintop experience of walking beside Jesus in dark and difficult times. Now, right before this, the the transfiguration is Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 8, look at what Jesus has to say to his followers. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's not the way things are going to work out. What are you talking about, Jesus? This is not what the future holds. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now, listen, the very next verse, as Jesus is describing the Christian life, he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life, their their soul? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. That the transfiguration, God offers an imperative. You all know I love grammar. I think grammar is wonderful. In grammar, we have imperatives. And I always say, if you use too many imperatives, people will say you're bossy. Go here. Do that. Stop. Pick that up. It's a command. And so Jesus, as He's with His disciples in the cloud with Moses and Elijah, suddenly God issues this imperative, this command. And it's simple. The cloud overshadows them. The presence of God is there. And from the cloud there comes a voice, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to Him. You and I get the chance to live with Jesus at our side. You and I get to live in the presence of of the second person of the Trinity, you and I get to live walking with the Lord. Now this is a life that's more textured than we may first imagine. It's not a life of of everything going our way. It's not a life that is free from problems. It is a life of taking up a cross, of picking up an obligation that we freely receive, that we freely acknowledge. It is a life of 
humble strength. Humble because we know that we are not God, but we are only God's creatures. But strength because Jesus is at our side and the Holy Spirit fills us as men and women who bear the image of God. And if we listen to the voice from the cloud, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. It's a life of obedience. Obedience first and foremost to Jesus. It is a life of obedience recognizing that we are responsible to one another and to God. That we are not who we want to be when we're at our best, but we are who God made us to be at our best. Listen to Him. Are you listening? There's a lot of noise. There are a lot of things that can keep us from focusing in on the voice of Jesus. Oh, we can explain away all the reasons why what Jesus said he didn't really mean. We can talk ourselves out of just about anything. But if we are to listen to the voice on the mountain, we're to recognize that God has sent his son into the world And God intends for us, as his people, to follow Jesus the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Mighty One, the one whom he has sent to save us and love us and to make us new. Listen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.